You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank podcast. I am Samantha Lai, research analyst at the Center for Technology Innovation. I am filling in as a guest host for this episode. New revelations from the January 6 hearings continue to shock the nation. And while former President Donald Trump had failed in his attempt to undermine a peaceful transition of power, it would be dangerous to assume that an end to Trumpism would be an end to all of America's problems. Political polarization and extremism continue to be at an all-time high, worsened by ongoing economic tensions. In his most recent book, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy, Daryl West, Vice President and Director of Governance Studies, Senior Fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation, and the co-host and founder of the Tech Tank podcast, contends with everything that has been going on. Today, I have the honor of interviewing him on this. Thank you, Daryl, for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Sam. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Same. So first things first, congratulations on publishing your book. It was a really interesting read. So you've done a lot of past work on political polarization and how that ties in with America as it is today. What on a personal level draws you to the topic? Well, I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Ohio, so it was obviously a very conservative area, both in terms of politics and religion. And then I taught political science for 26 years at Brown University, which is one of the most liberal universities in America. So I've lived among both conservative and liberal tribes. My immediate family reflects the high level of polarization that we see. I have two sisters who are Trump supporters. My brother, much more liberal, is not a, a big fan of former president at Trump. And so just based on my personal experience and my family background, I can see how high polarization has become very dangerous for American democracy. So in my new book, Power Politics, I talk about how power has become the dominant theme in politics. And if you have power, people now are using it, regardless of the ethical or moral aspects of that power. We see the dangers of polarization just in terms of people having their own facts and not agreeing on basic things that are happening in the country. There's a lack of trust. People view opponents almost as enemies. There's this us versus them mentality. And so in the book, I just talk about how all these developments that have unfolded over the last several decades have produced a real crisis point for the United States. Yeah, and I know that a lot of the problems you just mentioned, a lot of us attributed to everything that happened over the Trump administration. But as you argue in your book, Trumpism is going to outlast Trump. And you've also supported this with a lot of evidence on how this ties back to, again, decades of structural and systemic causes. What are these causes? Why is that the case? Why is Trumpism going to outlast Trump? And what further political risks do you see in our future? 
Well, we have to think about what it is that made Donald Trump possible. And then you start thinking about the structural and systemic issues that fueled populism and ultranationalism and made a number of people want somebody who would think outside the box, who would be completely unconventional, would violate norms. There are people who think those are good qualities in a situation where they don't like the status quo. And so in terms of the current situation, many Americans have suffered economically. Like when you look over the last 40 years, real wages have barely grown for a number of people around the country. There's a real lack of economic opportunity. There are threats to the American dream. And so there's an economic component, but there's also a cultural component where we're basically having this fight over secularization and whether America should be a secular nation or there are certain parts of our society that want to go back to a time when religion was a, a much bigger part of American public life. And I argue this in my book, that Trumpism is going to outlast Trump just because even if Trump retired tomorrow and never made another public utterance, all these factors that have created uh, populism and ultranationalism, a sense of a lack of economic opportunity, a view that political and economic elites aren't serving the best interests of the American public, all those structural factors are still going to be there. And so if we want to think about ways to save democracy, we do have to think about these structural problems, how to address them. Because if we don't address the underlying causes of the discontent, we're not going to be able to deal with the issues. And we're still going to be at risk from the standpoint of preserving our democracy. My follow-up question to that would be, what aspects of developments in digital technology contribute to these ongoing problems in terms of the weaponization of information, how that threatens democracy, how that has changed the way we interact? Well, technology is definitely part of this issue of threats to American democracy and why we have reached this point of high polarization and high extremism. As you mentioned, uh, there are people who are weaponizing information. And one of the problems of the digital world is there is so much information out there about everyone. So if someone wants to investigate you, in the old days, they would kind of go through your garbage or have someone uh, follow you and gather negative information that way. Of course, in the online world, you can actually investigate people digitally. You can get information about where they go, what they buy. There are third-party data vendors who basically compile a tremendous amount of digital information and then sell it to other people. So when you think about weaponizing information in the digital world, there is so much information that it contributes to the vulnerability that people feel, the tools that opponents can use against one another. And then, of course, the other aspect where technology is playing a role is just the toxic information ecosystem in which we all live. The way that social media has fueled polarization and extremism, has divided America, has made it possible for people with extreme views to find like-minded people. It's very easy to organize both on the left and the right through digital technology. So the technology angle, I think, is an important part of the threats to American democracy, just because there's so many problematic features that we need to address.
And it's not a problem that's going to be going away. And we have the 2022 elections around the corner. So all of those are really hard questions that we have to ask ourselves about. So I know that in the book, you also talk about defamation lawsuits and the role that plays in the weaponization of information and how that changes how politicians interact with people in the knowledge sector. So the most notable case we have seen as of recently has been the high-profile Depherd trial. But in the political space, Trump had also been using them. How has defamation trials changed things? Well, defamation is getting weaponized as well, along with so many different aspects of our, our current political life. And people don't understand how the rules on defamation are starting to change in a way that it is easier to sue people who you believe have defamed you. And so Trump has certainly been exercising this tactic. There have been several lawsuits that he has brought against editorial writers and columnists and people who are expressing their opinions about him. He doesn't like what they say. And so he has sued them. And what happens is over time, these lawsuits eventually have been thrown out of court and have not really gone forward. But the problem for the people who wrote those columns is they probably ended up spending a large amount of money on legal fees. And wealthy candidates such as Trump and others have figured out that you can use defamation as a way to challenge your critics. And one of the hallmarks of American democracy has been open discussion and people being able to express their views. If defamation becomes a political tactic for one side to use against the other, it starts to erode the freedom of speech that is so vital in American democracy. So people do need to understand how these legal cases are starting to erode some of the things that we really cherish about American democracy. That's definitely something that we also have to be worried about. Beyond that, you also talk about how we have issues of people finding vulnerabilities in technology, taking, for example, hacking and phishing attacks. Can you walk us through how those attacks work and how that has been used over the past years to undermine prominent figures? Well, opponents are looking for negative information about people. So there's been a big increase in phishing attacks where people send you what looks like a real email and ask you to click on a link. And if you click on that link, there is a danger that either that individual could take control of your computer or gain access to the information on your computer, such as your emails. And so it shows how in the digital era, when you have a highly polarized situation where people don't trust one another and where politics is almost becoming a form of warfare, these types of digital techniques, the phishing attacks, the surveillance capabilities that exist owing to the digital world, these types of tools are getting weaponized in a political sense and creating great risk for people. It's a risk for candidates. We saw what happened to Hillary Clinton in the 2016 campaign when the emails of one of her top advisors got hacked, and that became a, a big problem for her. And so 
the digital world is giving opponents new tools to use against their opponents. It creates a lot of risk for the system. It also erodes the trust that is so important in a democratic system. Like at one level, we all have to trust one another that somehow the system is going to work, that people can express their views, but many of those things are at risk right now. And people don't understand how that is creating problems for the way in which our democracy functions. And we also see kind of how that worsens the weaponization of information. And in your book, you also talk about various knowledge threats that become relevant and how that undermines our democracy by undermining the credibility of figures in the knowledge sector. So would you mind telling us more about how concerns with funding, news coverage, foreign influence, and all those other factors have changed how it's been like to be in the think tank space over recent years? Well, the knowledge sector is such an important part of democracy in the sense that universities play a very important role, think tanks, nonprofit organizations, advocacy groups. Like One of the things that has made America strong as a democracy has been the strength of our civil society. But everything today is contentious and controversial. And so there are lots of threats within the knowledge sector. For example, in universities, professors have academic freedom, but there are a lot of challenges to academic freedom. Like race has now become such an issue that some states have now legislated laws preventing faculty members from teaching about America's ugly history in terms of race. And they don't want professors to be talking about some of the ugliness that exists in our history. There have been prominent political commentators who teach at public universities who, when they have made negative comments about Trump, state party leaders have asked the university of that professor to investigate that individual. And so there are lots of ways in which people in think tanks, as well as in universities, are under attack, that academic freedom is under attack, And we're kind of used to thinking about threats to American democracy in terms of problems of voting rights and the way that our political institutions function. But we also need to think about civil society and the vital role that the knowledge sector plays. Absolutely. And in the book, you also recount how Brookings itself got embroiled in controversy surrounding Trump's impeachment. Can you tell our listeners more about what happened? Well, we had a situation where there were a number of scholars here, and of course, there were a number of experts around the country at other places that had strong opinions about Trump's presidency, expressed those criticisms, and then ultimately uh, that led to two impeachment trials for President Trump. There were a number of Brookings scholars that had death threats during this situation, just because the polarization and the extreme views that exist within America right now have really aroused strong sentiments. And so when people see some experts going on television complaining about Trump and or uh, suggesting that there were some grounds to his uh, being impeached, they would get death threats. And this was not limited to us. I mean, members of Congress have been getting uh, death threats. Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, and others now have security details that have to go with them. There was a New York gubernatorial candidate just a few weeks ago who was attacked while he was speaking on stage. And so 
there's either the threat of violence or sometimes actual violence that's politically motivated that is starting to develop in ways that people should worry about. When you look at other countries around the world that were functioning democracies and then somehow started to slide either into illiberalism or outright authoritarianism, oftentimes the society started to see political violence develop on a wider scale. And America is kind of in the early stages of that. We haven't seen widespread violence linked to political rallies and so on. But other countries have gone through that, and we need to be very vigilant because, again, when the lack of trust starts to erode, when people see their opponents as enemies, it starts to create a situation where it almost encourages violence, and violence becomes a huge threat to democracy itself. Well, that's terrifying. You also mentioned we're looking right now at not that good economic situation in the U.S. and around the world in the face of an ongoing pandemic. So what is the role that kind of economics plays in all of this? I know that you mentioned the role the ultra-wealthy play in terms of knowledge threats, and you've previously also written about the wealthification of America with your 2014 book called Billionaires. Could you tell us more about that? Well, money is definitely a problem in every aspect of society because we have very high levels of income inequality in America. I think you almost have to go back 100 years to the 1920s and 1930s to find income inequality as high as what we see today. This affects the political process. We see it in the campaign finance area uh, where the ultra wealthy are putting huge amounts of money into the political process. And in my billionaires uh, book uh, that was published in uh, 2014, I present public opinion data that shows how the ultra wealthy have very different political views than do ordinary Americans. They're much more in favor of low taxes and deregulation, less interested in the government investing in economic opportunity, investing in healthcare, investing in education. So the high level of income inequality that we see creates political problems in terms of the role that the wealthy are playing in our political process. But then it also creates problems in terms of the public rightfully understanding that they are experiencing a loss of economic opportunity. It is a lot harder for them today. I mean, I was fortunate, even though I came from a working class background, I got a good education. I had access to healthcare. When I became a professor, I was able to buy my first house. Today, young people experience many more challenges on all those fronts in terms of paying for education. It's very expensive. Getting adequate health care, buying the first home, even renting an apartment in any major city, the, the rental costs have gone up. And so the lack of economic opportunity and the fact that wages have stagnated for so many people create a threat to democracy because when people are unhappy with the economic status quo, they look for scapegoats. They start looking for someone to blame. And the politics gets uglier. The lack of trust starts to arise. The whole system becomes under a lot greater stress. And that's exactly what we're seeing in America today. And so a lot of these economic problems the cultural divide that we see in America and the threats to American democracy are all intertwined. They're interrelated. 
each problem creates problems in these other areas. And so ultimately, when we start thinking about ways to address these issues, we do have to think about these structural problems. Yeah, those are all really important aspects of this to flag. You also talk about how the landscape has changed for think tanks in terms of news coverage and funding and how things are presented on social media and how politicians have been reacting to things that have been going on in terms of funding for think tanks and all that. In what ways has that changed what it's like to work in the knowledge sector and what challenges has Brookings and other institutions faced over the last couple of years on that front? Well, there's a lot more criticism of think tanks, universities, nonprofit organizations, and then people who are active in the political process itself. And so when you have high polarization, it starts to affect every aspect of society. It starts to make people critical of everyone else. It creates problems in terms of the trust of the system. We see a lack of trust in expertise these days. And I've always thought that one of the things that actually has made America great has been our science establishment and our technological innovation and our capacity to innovate in those areas. I mean, our technology tools are the envy of many nations around the world, but yet the very expertise that contributed to America's economic success and our military power around the world is now under attack because people don't trust the experts. We saw that during the COVID when people didn't trust the medical experts, don't trust the vaccines, don't think there should be a mask mandate when the COVID numbers start to rise. We see that lack of trust and expertise in the climate change area where there are climate deniers. And so you can kind of go area after area, clearly in the elections area, lots of contentiousness over what happened in 2020. And so the lack of trust in expertise, people having their own facts, not trusting the news media, not trusting news organizations, when you start to undermine the trust in what we call the authoritative institutions that help hold leaders accountable, it creates problems for democracy. Because again, when you look at other countries that have slid into authoritarianism, one of the first things authoritarian leaders do is to go after civil society and to go after universities, they fire professors, they go after think tanks, they attack the news media and undermine their credibility. Because the last thing authoritarian leaders want is people who can check the facts, people who can basically question leaders, who can express other points of view. And we're starting to see that in America today, that the authoritative institutions that help hold leaders accountable are under attack. And it's going to be hard to maintain American democracies if people don't trust universities and they don't trust the news media and they don't trust the experts. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You also write about the role that social shaming and hate and harassment on the Internet also plays into that. Can you tell us more about that? Social media enables attacks on one another. It's you know, why our information ecosystem is so toxic today. I mean, we see it on Twitter all the time where there are Twitter mobs that can descend on someone. And, and this happens kind of across the political spectrum. So it's not just a problem of the left or the right. It's a problem of the left and the right, people who hold extreme views. 
can use social media to attack people they perceive as being cool. It's very easy to engage in social shaming online by attacking people over Facebook or Twitter. And so the fact that these tools enable polarization, enable attacks on one another, and enable extremism are part of the problems of democracy. I've seen it with some of my colleagues who are very active on Twitter and the attacks that they have gone through. Uh, I often see, especially our female scholars, get subjected to a lot of online vitriol, a lot of online attacks. People try and shame them into silence. Scholars of color are experiencing the exact same sort of thing. So we have to figure out ways to get a handle on social media platforms because they are now the way in which people get a lot of information. They're the way in which people are sharing information. And if that part of our information ecosystem is so toxic, which I believe is the case, it creates problems for democracy. Yeah, I definitely agree about that. So taking a step back from social media and kind of knowledge threats, you also write about the counter-majoritarian nature of the American political system and how that set the stage for a lot of problems we see today. What do you mean when you talk about the counter-majoritarian nature? What elements of the American political system make these problems worse? Well, we seem to be moving away from a political system based on majority Political scientists have this term called counter-majoritarianism, which basically suggests that small numbers of people are starting to dominate larger numbers of people. And we have institutions that are no longer reflecting the public will. I mean, for example, in presidential elections, it's not the popular vote winner who becomes president. It is the winner of the electoral college. A lot of people don't recognize that Republicans have won the presidential popular vote only once between 1992 and 2020. That was in 2004 when Bush did win the presidential popular vote over John Kerry. But in every other election, they have not won the presidential popular vote. But because of the Electoral College, they still can become president. And they have uh, controlled the presidency for almost half of the years during this 30-year time period. That has allowed them to put people on the court we then see the Supreme Court overturning policies that are supported by two-thirds of Americans. We have many pieces of legislation that are supported by large numbers of Americans that can't get a vote in the U.S. because it takes 60 votes out of the 100 senators to overcome a filibuster on the part of one of the senators. We have gerrymandering in the House, which is distorting electoral representation. I mean, ideally, if a party gets 52% of the popular vote, you would want them to get 52% of the seats. But because of gerrymandering, both at the state legislative level as well as in the House of Representatives, that is not the case. I mean, for example, in 2022, if Democrats win the House popular vote nationally by 52 to 48, they are still not likely to have a majority in the House because of gerrymandering, Republicans are, would be likely to have a majority there, even though they lost the House of popular vote across the country. So you can kind of look at our political system in a lot of different ways, and we seem to be moving towards an unrepresentative system. This creates 
frustration in the sense that when two thirds of the people support campaign finance reform or climate change or creating greater economic opportunity and our political institutions are not able to act because the system is rigged in favor of small numbers of people over large numbers of people, this creates a systemic problem for democracy. And we're pretty much in that situation now where counter-majoritarianism is taking over the Electoral College, the U.S. Senate. We see it in gerrymandering. We see it in federal court packing. We have lax campaign finance rules. In just area after area, there are threats to majority rule that basically erodes public trust in how our democracy functions. Yeah, all of those are really bad problems. And I know that we touched on this briefly too previously when you talked about rising racial tensions have limited the things that people could teach in classrooms. What other cultural factors are there that are worsening these issues with polarization, with the lack of representation and the growing bipartisan tensions in this country? Well, almost every cultural issue is worsening the polarization and fueling extremism. Certainly in the race area, there's a lot of contentiousness there, and that creates uh, problems. Cultural issues related to gender divide Americans and creates uh, issues. Anything related to immigration is very contentious because there are people who don't want a lot of immigrants coming to America which I always find ironic because people don't understand how immigrants are such an important part of America's economic prosperity, as well as our technology innovation. Like half of the Silicon Valley companies had an immigrant founder or co-founder. And so part of the story of American success in technology innovation is the story of immigration. But like race and gender, immigration now is a cultural issue where it's, it's kind of an us versus them mentality, and people want to build walls at the border and keep immigrants out. So all of these cultural issues are difficult for democracy to resolve because they evoke very strong feelings, very strong emotions on various sides of the, the issue. It becomes hard for politicians to engage in compromise, bargaining, and negotiation on these topics. Like, if your particular cultural issue is a moral issue for you, you view negotiation as surrender to the enemy. That makes it difficult for our political system to actually resolve conflict and address the many problems that we see right now. So we've laid out a lot of problems that we see happening right now. On a systemic level, what changes do we need to tackle these many challenges you have laid out today? Well, there certainly are many threats to American democracy. But in the book, I also try and talk about possible solutions, ways to address these issues. And a lot of the solutions that I talk about are at the systemic level, just because I think a lot of the causes of polarization, extremism, radicalization, and, and undemocratic attitudes are systemic in nature. And so therefore, to address them, some of the remedies have to be systemic in nature. So I have a number of things that I talk about. One is just protecting democratic processes, like we need to get rid of the Electoral College. And I certainly recognize that's not going to happen in the next presidential election or 
probably in the next two or three. But on a longer term basis, political change takes time. We need to start the process of educating people on why the Electoral College is an anti-majoritarian institution and therefore is highly problematic. We also need to think about ways to limit unilateral political power in America. A lot of people don't understand that over time, Congress has actually passed a number of emergency power declarations that allow a president on his or her own just to declare a national emergency and basically rule unilaterally in that particular area. There, I believe, are more than two dozen pieces of legislation that have been passed over a number of decades that basically give a president emergency powers. And of course, people have always assumed that a president would respect historic norms, act reasonably and be responsible in the exercise of emergency power. But then if America is starting to slide into illiberalism or authoritarianism, we can no longer make that assumption that we're going to have a responsible and reasonable president. And so we need to think about ways to limit these unilateral exercise of presidential power. Congress needs to look at these emergency power declarations and start to create mechanisms where they can actually override a president if they think that president is acting unfairly or unreasonably. So that should be important. Because our toxic information ecosystem is a big part of the problems of polarization and extremism and undemocratic actions, we need to figure out ways to confront misinformation and outright propaganda. We need to think about content moderation on the social media platforms and ways the companies and our system as a whole can function in a more rational manner. Race and gender are certainly big challenges facing the country. So we need to figure out ways to address these issues, both the economic aspects as well as the cultural aspects. So there are lots of different suggestions that I make in the book to deal with this issue. Even though I'm a little pessimistic in the short run, I'm actually optimistic in the long term about America's ability to maintain a functioning democracy. But in order to do that, we have to address the systemic issues and these structural issues. Definitely. It's good to hear that there is like an optimistic way out after all. Just to follow up on some of the solutions you provided, I'm curious to hear what should be done with social media platforms to improve public discourse. Well, I think there just needs to be more accountability. Some of it companies are starting to do on their own in the sense that they're developing AI algorithms to try and spot clearly miss information or disinformation campaigns that take place on these platforms. But we also need to think about the legal liability that these platforms have. Right now, there's uh, virtually uh, no legal uh, liability on the part of the platform. So we need to think about ways to address that. I think there are a number of things that uh, my colleagues and I have written about. You can uh, kind of ch check out our Tech Tank uh, blog for some of the uh, details on uh, this, but there needs to be more accountability in the social media system. Definitely. And you also talk about how it will kind of on an individual level, people can also be careful about their digital fingerprints online. What can people do on a personal level in terms of navigating this new world of technology where everything is online? 
Well, I have a section in the book where I do talk about all the digital fingerprints that all of us leave all over the place. And of course, people often feel that they are free to say and do whatever they want through online platforms, but they often don't realize that either law enforcement can gain access to this information, or we actually saw it in the aftermath of the January 6th violence on Capitol Hill, some of the ways in which these individuals were identified and then ultimately indicted were because they took pictures of themselves inside the Capitol building. And so that became evidence of at least trespassing. Sometimes there were videos or the geolocation features of their phones that identified them and kind of put them in particular situations that became challenging for them. And so Everybody needs to understand there are lots of digital fingerprints that are being left and to take steps to protect themselves. And particularly if our democracy starts to lose some of our due process protections that we long have taken for granted, this becomes even more important. So people should just think about their digital footprint, how they're using devices, and make sure that they are protecting themselves in a case that we move towards illiberalism. Yeah, all of that is super important. Thank you so much, Daryl, for the insights you have given us today. And everyone remember to check out his book, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. Thank you so much again, Daryl, for coming on. And thank you, Sam. So this has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bites. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I am Samantha Lai, research analyst at the Center for Technology Innovation and guest host of this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.